All right, if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. And the message I'm going to preach to you this morning is, Hear the caged woman sing, the rising of Mary Magdalene. It's a message I've been working on for about a month, and it's heavy on my heart. And I hope to be able to bless uh, by, the, by the preaching of the word this morning. Maya Angelou was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and her parents moved to Los Angeles where their marriage would end. They did not want to take care of the two kids, three and four-year-old kids, so they basically uh, tied little tags around their wrists in Los Angeles and put them on a train at the train station. Can you imagine that? And sent them to Stamps, Arkansas with no adult uh, supervision. And those three- and four-year-old kids were taken care of by porters on the trip and came to their grandmother's house in Stamps, Arkansas. Later, she would actually go back to live with her mom in St. Louis at the age of seven. And there, Maya was raped by her mom's boyfriend, and she testified in court, and the man was found guilty. Uh, But then he was let out of prison a day later, and a couple days later, he was found dead. She believed that her uncles kicked him to death. But worse yet, she realized when she heard the story that it was her words on the stand that did it. So she quit speaking. She became mute for five years. I had to stop talking, she said, so I didn't kill other people. So I would just think of my whole body as an ear. And her grandmother would do her hair and tell her, you're going to be a preacher one day. You're going to be a teacher. You're going to speak all over the world. During that time, because she didn't want to speak, she read every book she possibly could in her black school. All the books she could get. Then she tried to borrow as many books from the white school as possible. But she read James Weldon Johnson, Langston Hughes. She memorized Shakespeare, 50 sonnets by Shakespeare. She memorized all of Edgar Allan Poe's poetry and Longfellow. It wasn't until her teacher told her that poetry was only useful if it was spoken that she opened her mouth again. And she started to speak. And she said, when I decided to speak, I had a lot to say. At the age of 41, she wrote the book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Time Magazine said that's the 100 most influential books in the last 100 years. And she wrote a poem called, uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I want to just play a little clip of that uh, for you this morning. I'd encourage you to buy the book and continue to read the rest of that poem. But I want to introduce you now to another caged bird. And her name is Mary Magdalene. Most of us are confused as to who Mary Magdalene really was. After all, there are seven Marys in the New Testament. 50% of all women in the first century were named Mary or Salome. And so Mary has been oft confused and difficult to understand. But in Luke chapter 8, it says, Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Who was this caged bird, and why am I calling her a caged bird? I'll give you now a contemporary picture, perhaps the most popular global movie about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. So I want to play for you how Mel Gibson portrays Mary Magdalene in the Passion. 
you're familiar with the scriptures, that is the story of the woman taken in adultery uh, who was thrown into the public square and they were ready to stone and kill her. She is the patron saint of repentant prostitutes in the Middle Ages. Reformation houses for women who've been prostitutes by the 18th century were now called Magdalene houses. In just a cursory Google search, as you will find actually the truth of this as uh, laundry in England, uh, where women who were involved in prostitution could come and get a good job. But it's even uh, as late as our contemporary times. Project shows hookers a way out, Magdalene House uh, in Orange County. I actually have a spray, uh, hand sanitizer spray. I was given at a conference last week in San Antonio from the Magdalene Project in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, this is for women um, caught in prostitution. If you go through contemporary uh, movies like The Passion and others, you'll find Jesus Christ Superstar, where Mary Magdalene sings about Jesus being actually in love with him. I don't know how to love him. I don't know how to take this. I don't see why he moves me. He's a man, just a man, and I've had so many men before, and in very many ways, he's just one more. In The Last Temptation of the Christ, Martin Scorsese basically has her cast as a one-woman Galilean brothel, okay? The, he, he then talks about the woman taken in adultery. She got married to Jesus. They actually have a lovemaking scene in The Last Temptation of Christ, and Barbara Hershey got a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress in that role of Mary Magdalene. In The Da Vinci Code, Mary and Jesus have a baby named Sarah. So we think, oh yeah, that's Jesus Christ Superstar, that's Martin Scorsese, that's, that's Mel Gibson, that's those people, uh, that's the Da Vinci Code. But in the Jesus film, the big Jesus film, seen by four billion people around the world, Mary Magdalene is viewed as the woman, the sinner who came in and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And then we have as recent as The Chosen, which if you live streamed that last night for free, the Chosen puts her in the red quarter. And the very first scene introducing her to the world is a client, a man, coming out of her house. And in season two, episode five, she relapses into drinking and gambling. Here's the problem. Every single representation is wrong. Every single one. I'm not just saying this to be provocative or shocking, it's just true. There's probably no more mischaracterized person in human history than Mary Magdalene. I think she's the most misunderstood person in the Bible, and it's time to open the cage. She was not a prostitute. She was not a woman of the night. She was not the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. She was not the woman taken in adultery. She's actually the picture of the most devoted disciple in the entire Bible. She is perhaps the person you should model your life after. More than Peter, James, John, or Matthew, she actually exemplifies what it's like to be a true disciple of Jesus. So I want to talk to you about six parts of her life as we let her rise out of the cage. First of all, I believe she was created and called by God to make a significant impact upon her world. Most stories, I, I find this in cross-purpose, I find this in pastoral ministry. When I ask people to tell me their story, they usually talk to me about the dark spot of their life. They, they go there first. They, like to be, they don't like it, but they, they feel defined by their worst deeds. 
But I believe all stories start with creation, with God's intent. I want to know God's call on your life before the world told you what they think you should be or before you told yourself who you think you should be. God called you and created you with a purpose. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was created to give birth to our Savior. But Mary of Magdala was the first testifier to the birth of Jesus from the grave that would heal the world. And she was created to be the model disciple, the initial proclaimer of the good news. And she has faced this discrimination her whole history. Even the word maudlin in French, which is the French form of her name, means emotionally silly and weakly and effusively sentimental. But I think if you went to high school with Mary Magdalene, she would be the most likely to succeed. She would be passionate, loyal, driven, courageous, a leader, risky, adventurous. I mean, think more like Malala or Michelle Obama, or Melinda Gates, or Mother Teresa. That's who we're talking about with Mary Magdalene. But she was possessed by seven, seven demons, the Bible says in Luke chapter 8. It's the only time in Scripture where the actual number of demons were given to somebody possessed. What is demon possession? I, I don't want to go into demonology here uh, this morning, but I will talk about the symptoms of if you were demon-possessed, imagine yourself uh, this happening to you. It, it, it looked like a severe psychological or psychiatric disorder. It then moved you into social isolation. We see pictures of people living in graveyards, dwelling on mountaintops, uh, driven by demons into the desert. So you were without people. Often uh, you would be naked. You would cause self-harm. You would exhibit excessive strength, an inability to speak, seizures intermittently on and off and unexpectedly. And, and the seizures were usually associated with great suffering. Can you imagine one demon's enough? She has seven demons possessing her. So she probably had scars all over her body, living on the outskirts of town, ostracized by her family, hanging around tombs, and a life of complete suffering. Now here's an important link I want you to make. Possession by a demon in Scripture was never linked to sin. It's not like she had little trolls on her mantle and invited demons into her life. You really had no control over whether demons possessed you or not. It was the true forces of evil in your life. Humans are mere pawns in a cosmic war of good and evil. The demon's job is to propel the kingdom of darkness. My, my, my wife uh, sinned one time in her life uh, and told me about using a Ouija board and it freaked her out. And that's where she actually knew that, oh, there's more than just the material world, right? Uh, but my wife didn't invite demons into her life, right? You see someone possessed by a demon, you have no idea where it came from, okay? But then she was delivered by Jesus, amen? Because Jesus is more powerful than any demon. I mean, he basically delivers this uh, other demoniac and the demons go into a herd of sheep and they run off a cliff. Jesus's ministry is to liberate people from possession. These are one of the four main areas of Jesus. But can you imagine being released from this life of suffering by a man? The torment, the shame, the loss of relationships, the suffering, the wondering of if would, it come, would they all come back, right? But when she is released from this... Can you hear her sing? The cage door gets opened up. What happens when you let someone out of a cage in the prison of darkness? They sing songs of freedom. 
I mean, I can hear her sing, my chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior has ransomed me. On this day of Easter, do you remember the day you were delivered by Jesus from the life perhaps that you were living? Or maybe if you were, came to Christ as a young kid, the life that without Christ you would have lived, he delivered you from that. I can imagine her family probably threw a party. She probably moved back in with him. They probably introduced her to her aunts and uncles because they were like, nieces and nephews, you ain't going to go around crazy Mary, right? They probably all came back for the big party. And I bet the local cosmetology school threw an extreme makeover for her. And it was the front page of the Denver Post. And it was a big deal that this woman was back. So they get to the party. Then the announcement comes. She tells the whole family, I'm not going to stay. I'm going with that guy. Now, I'm a parent, and my kids regularly drop shocking announcements to Jen and I over the years. <laughs> I just got one via Zoom. Dad, I'm going to go to Africa for a year, step out of college with my best friend, and we're going to go to Africa for a year, right? Uh, shocking announcements. I'm not going to go down the plan that perhaps you want for my life, you know? And, of course, all those fears come up as a parent. I can't imagine sitting there with Mary telling me she's going to go follow this exorcist. I would probably say, like, Mary, you need time to heal. I have been through trauma-informed training, right? You have been through trauma. If he keeps meeting people like this, you could get triggered. I'm not sure hanging out with an exorcist is going to be the best for you. I've talked to my friend Juan. He'll get you a job at Cross Purpose. We've registered you with uh, PA, Possessed Anonymous, and uh, go get your chip and give yourself time to get back on your feet. This would be my challenge to Mary at the table. But she says, thanks, but no thanks. I know what I've been through, and none of you could help me with it. But I encountered a force that was greater than the cause of all of my suffering. Amen. And I'm pretty sure that whatever life's going to throw my way, he can handle it. And I'm going to go with him. You say, Jason, how do you know that this scene happened? You know, well, I feel like, I don't really know, but if Mel Gibson can make her an adulterous woman, I can actually have the facts on my side to make her this strong, independent woman who makes her own choice, right? <laughs> let, let, let's liberate Mary from the bonds of this sexualization. So then she became a devoted disciple in Jesus' inner circle. She left, the Bible says, and followed him. She left her family. As far as we know, it was from the Galilean ministry forward. For the, for the most time in Jesus' ministry, she was right there with him. And we have a bunch of clues as to where she stood. It says in Luke, it says, also with her was Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, the manager of Herod's household. So this is like the king's chief of staff's spouse. But she is listed before her. You have a woman of prominence. She was powerful. In the nine times she is listed, she's listed first eight of the nine times. The only time she's listed second is for Mary, the mother of Jesus. She had a voice, and this was countercultural. I, I believe she probably had as much activity or more with the apostles' band than most of the apostles. Jesus always had women with him in the inner circle, there were always women at the table. But then, she is also a donor. 
She was the lead philanthropist for the entire ministry of Jesus. She had wealth, because the Bible says there at the last part, the women provided for them out of their means. The women financed the ministry of Jesus. They were the donors that kept the whole thing going. And then they were ministers. That word provided at the end of verse 3 is the word where we get our word deacon from. She deaconed Jesus. That means they did the books, the trip planning, the ministry facilitation. Folks, this was countercultural for a rabbi to travel with women at all, let alone have them part of the inner circle. And then she did it in, in the face of intense discrimination. Intense discrimination. I just have listed out here some of the things I could go on for pages about the way women were discriminated against in the first century, but they could not participate in synagogue worship, spectators only. They couldn't go into the court of the, uh, into the temple, just the court of the women. They couldn't touch the scriptures to, unless they defile them. A man was not to talk much with a woman, even his wife. Talk with a woman in public was yet more restrictive. You had to have two men with you if you're going to do that. Under Jewish law, you couldn't divorce your husband, which led to abusive behavior. Women could not testify in a court of law, and they never traveled with rabbis. So she faced, we know she faced this kind of discrimination wherever she went. But folks, the discrimination against Mary Magdalene didn't just happen in the first century. It has happened for the last 2,000 years, and there's, a, and there's a reason why. And I want to play a part in her liberation because it has hurt the church. This dude right here was Pope Gregory the Great, and he wasn't so great. In AD 591, he gave a sermon where he combined the woman taking adultery, the woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair, and Mary Magdalene, and put him into one person, forever giving her the stigma of a prostitute. Then secondly, he said the seven demons were the seven deadly sins. In other words, there's no bigger sinner in the world than Mary Magdalene. And it stuck. And he tried to put her in a cage for all time. I'm sorry, but if you're a leader of a church, your job is to rightly divide the word of truth. And it's not hard. Mary is mentioned 14 times, more than any other woman besides Mary, the mother of Jesus. Like, it's not hard to figure out these were not the same women. Now, I know what you Protestants are thinking. Yep, that's those Catholics, man. They are just the worst. Thank God the Protestants figured it out in 1600. Well, you know who founded Protestantism was Martin Luther. You know what Martin Luther said about Mary Magdalene? I quote, she had a hot, lusting, rutting heart for Jesus. A rutting heart. I've never heard that term for anything but deer and elk. This is Martin Luther. Here I stand on the scripture, I can do nothing else. And he got Mary completely wrong. The implications of these terrible pictures, we've been robbed of her glorious testimony and witness and is perpetuated for hundreds of years. Robert Keeley in his book, Blessed and Beautiful, said the problem now is, he wrote a book called Picturing the Saints. When Gregory did this, all of the religious art going forward gave public images of Mary the prostitute. So why would male spiritual leaders take the most powerful woman in scripture and cast her as a prostitute? You got to ask yourself that question. I'm not going to say anything to the women in this room they don't already know, but when you take a woman's character and you can only get people to think about her in a sexualized way, you've neutralized her. In a culture where women don't have power, there's nothing she can do. 
You want to silence and marginalize a powerful woman? Get everyone to focus on her body instead of her intellect, her wisdom, her gifts, her power, and her generosity. When you see a man, especially a spiritual leader, focus on an unusual amount of time on women's appearances, let me say this. The problem is with the man, not the woman, okay? Jesus changed this cultural sexual stigmatization of women. Why does the church do this? Several theories. Some people think we want a really cool Jesus. We want the pretty woman story, right? That Jesus even forgives a prostitute. Maybe it's that sex actually sells and that's not just for Hollywood. That's for Christian filmmaking, too. You actually want to watch a YouTube video. When The Chosen came out with Episode 5, Season 2, and they had Mary do the relapse, it caused a reaction. And Dallas Jenkins, who's the producer, the director, gets on there and says, why do you have a problem with the idea that somebody can relapse back into sin? That happens, and I want to stand on the gospel that God even redeems people who've made mistakes. And he completely defended his portrayal of Mary Magdalene in The Chosen. And I just want to ask Dallas, then why in the blankety-blank did you pick her to portray that? We have no clue that she relapsed. We have no clue she even had a sin problem. But we have Peter who denied, Judas who betrayed, the boys who went back fishing... <laughs> We got a lot of relapse stories we can pull from, right? But sex sells, even in the Christian theater. Like this woman said, women looking to the Bible for inspiration already have limited choices of female role models. And we suddenly cut Mary Magdalene off at the knees and turn her into some kind of an evil sex pervert. We deprive men and women, but especially women, of a figure with whom they can identify. I'm sure I'm going to get an email from some man in this room that feels like I picked on men today, but, you know, you're going to be okay. <laughs> You've got a couple thousand years of the wind at your back. You're going to be fine, okay? But then I think the most powerful part of this, this is what I really want you to see. First of all, nothing you've seen is correct. And I can prove it from Scripture. I'll sit down and walk through every passage with you. Nothing is correct. She became an apostle to the apostles. We could say the apostle to the apostles. I think we can make the case that she was the number one disciple. Because just look at the evidence. First of all, when Jesus was betrayed in the garden, the men fled. The women stayed. Okay? Mark 15, verse 40 says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. The men were absolutely gone except for John, and there was a crowd of women at the cross. Why? I think they're still hoping for deliverance, right? This man that they love and they follow, they want him not to die. But then he dies. The women stay there, and when Joseph takes the body off the cross in Luke 23, listen, and the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after. So they're following Joseph to the tomb and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. The women were there watching Jesus get put into the tomb, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Matthew actually said then that after that was done, she was sitting over against the sepulcher. So even when Joseph had left, Mary Magdalene was sitting right there. 
Like literally every single man was gone. And the first person they mentioned that didn't leave at any part of the scene was Mary Magdalene. Then she observed the Sabbath on Saturday. We believe Jesus died around 6 p.m. They probably had their pre-Sabbath meal. And then a Jewish tradition said you went and you rested on the Sabbath day. The last part of Luke 23 says they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Can you imagine Saturday with Mary? Grief. Sadness. I mean, for her, she really lost her whole family in one afternoon. The person she loved and revered passed away without fulfilling the hope she wanted. Sadness that her deliverer was dead. The loss of a loved one. If you've experienced it, the Saturdays suck. And maybe a little bit of anger. Maybe a little bit of anger at him for leaving, right? Maybe at the disciples for abandoning him. Maybe at the Jews for what they did. But then as she starts to look inward, she had staked her entire reputation upon this man. And now that was all falling apart. Her reputation was on the line. All she could do as a woman in that culture was to go back home. Her dreams were shattered. She had a ministry, a thriving ministry every single day, day in and day out, and now there there was no ministry. There were no crowds. There was no reason for philanthropy. There was no debriefing these wonderful ministry times. And I imagine she felt herself going back into that cage on that Saturday. She had heard Jesus say, that I'm, I'm not going to stay dead, but it didn't lodge with her. Because she woke up on Sunday morning, and she's the first one. And she goes and she buys some more spices to finish the embalming process, and therefore she's the first one to the scene of the tomb. Once again, first, 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 never left, never left, never left, never left. Now Mary stood out the t- outside the tomb crying. Okay, this I'm, I'm bringing you partway into the scene uh, in John 20 here, but in the verse 10 verses, she goes in, the, t- the stones roll away, the body's missing. She runs to the disciples. They come back. They look inside, right? And she's standing outside the tomb while the disciples are inside, and she's crying. And as she wept, she bent over looking to the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They said, woman, why are you crying? Okay, these are the angels on the inside, right? They've taken my Lord away. And she said, I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. So she thought it was the gardener, right? He probably had his face hidden. And he said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will go get him, right? There's nothing in her mind that Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus said, Mary. What? And she runs toward him and cries out, Rabboni. The real meaning there is, my master. Right? And she, we, we know she clinged on to him. She didn't just walk up to his foot and put her hand on his foot. She hugged him. He says, don't hold on to me. This is not just in the moment. This is, this is the whole essence of the gospel. Like, don't hold on to me. I am leaving to go to my father. Right? But go tell my brothers. I'm ascending to my father and marry your father. 
to my God and Mary, your God. And she goes and says, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. The caged bird sang those words and announced to the world that it was forever going to be different. Jesus did not need a morgue. He just needed a waiting room. Just needed a place where he could count the three. And this whole world was going to change. And then she goes to the, to the men in Luke 24, 11. Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women, they went to the men and they said, we've seen the Lord. And what did the men say? Their words seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. She's number one, folks. I can imagine the men going, man, she's hanging around the tombs again. She got triggered, reverted to her old ways. Female witnesses were not deemed convincing in Jewish or Roman tradition. A woman's words in a court of law were not trusted, had to be validated by two men. The patriarch in the early church origin said, quote, Mary Magdalene was a holy, unsuitable first witness. In other words, God could have done better. God's always trying to flip the tables in this world, and you thought it was this way, but it's really this way. Let's take the woman most possessed by demons and let's make her most possessed by God. She was the first apostle. She's the only witness in all four gospel accounts. Augustine says this, the Holy Spirit made Magdalene the apostle of the apostles. St. Thomas, Thomas Aquinas calls it the apostolorum apostola, the apostle of the apostles. The risen Christ at the most important juncture for the Christian movement, you would think he would not pick a woman. But he picks a woman, a formerly demon-possessed woman, to proclaim to everyone the basic tenet of the Christian faith, he is not dead, he is alive. The demon-possessed woman became the declarer of good news. The marginalized woman became the megaphone for the resurrection. The world was now flipped on its head. The doubted woman became the vindicated woman as Jesus then started appearing to the men and showing him that it was really real, real. Why do I preach this sermon on Easter? Because I think she deserves for her name to be cleared, her strength to be shown, and the church deserves a role model of the ideal, devoted disciple of Jesus. She's the one we know who gave everything, her life, her energy, her talents, her money, her career, her future, everything. And she did not run when the going got tough. She never engaged in the silly power plays about who would be the greatest. She never denied him. She never ran from the cross. Bruce Chilton, in his book on Mary Magdalene, he says she's one of the prime catalysts in shaping forces of Christianity. Now, thank God the Catholic Church has repented of what they have done. They finally corrected Gregory's Issue in 1969 at Vatican II. The Catholic Church has now elevated her to the role of an apostle. It's a big deal for the Catholic Church. The only people in the Catholic Church that ever got a feast named after them were the 12 apostles. And on June 3rd, 2016, yes, 2016, Pope Francis now gave Mary Magdalene her own feast. We are in 2016 and we're just trying to correct it because they know it's going to take century to recorrect the thinking that, a century, that 1,500 years has done in characterizing her the way they did. We should not have schools with former prostitutes called the Magdalene House. 
It should be the Mary Magdalene School of Christian Leadership. I mean, this is where we should go to find out what it's really like to be devoted. I imagine the classes I wrote some down. Spiritual formation, understanding true devotion. Women in philanthropy, generosity practices for kingdom advancement. Dealing with doubts, lessons from my horrible Saturday. <laughs> Rising up, how to break through the glass ceiling of cultural limitations. Jesus the liberator, how Jesus closed the gender gap. Fierce leadership, leading when society says you can't. When your boardroom is all men and they're cowards, deniers, embezzlers, and betrayers. <laughs> That's all true. Bold proclamation, preaching when nobody believes you. She is the pinnacle of devotion. Webster says devotion is loyalty. And by the way, if we can preach about the role models of men and expect men and women, men and women to follow, then we can also hold up a women and expect men and women to follow. So it's not just for women. Now, why do I preach this message? Because our mission at Providence is to live as fully loved and devoted followers of Jesus to love our neighbors do the same. This message is all about that word devoted. We have a larger crowd than normal. There's a joke in the church of the Christmas and Easter Christians who only show up twice a year to a service as a religious duty. Let me just tell you, if you're just coming back to church for the first time, I'm not here to shame you or anything, but Jesus wants it all. I'm not even here as a pastor to say, man, you ought to be in church every single Sunday. It's way worse than that. <laughs> Jesus wants you to be a Mary. Jesus wants you to live a different life. And I want to invite you into it, not as a cross to bear, but as a joy to receive, as you heard in the testimonies here today. The gospel demands an all-in. If Jesus is the one who released you, he's delivered you, then he says, follow me. How can we not live our life for him? What has propelled this church for 15 years to make an impact in the community is a belief that Jesus has released us, he has delivered us, and we are to love our neighbors to experience that same Jesus. And, and let me say to everybody here, I think it is important to know that Jesus sees that even hidden in the pages of Scripture is this wonderful woman that is finally getting noticed. But that's all what Jesus is about because he always says that the first will be last and the last will be first. So embrace good Christian work in obscurity. I think the like button has really screwed up Christian mission. We only think we're making an impact if a number of people see or our crowd is big. Jesus was never about that stuff. It's valuable when it's done for Jesus and he notices everything. So I got to ask you this morning, what's holding you back from complete Mary Magdalene devotion? I don't know what it is, but I do believe that in, in the Christian faith, we believe the spirit of God is here and he is speaking to you right now and he is saying something. I ask that you obey. You were given a card with a pen on the way in. If you don't, you can do it on your phone. But I really want you to think through this. What would devotion look like for me on Monday, this next week, this next month, this next year? And the good news is, folks, when you let Jesus possess you, he gives you the power to do it because he is actually the truly devoted one. He was devoted to his father. He was devoted to his mission. He was devoted to you. And because he rose from the dead, you can come out of your cage and you can rise. Maya Angelou was a devout church-going believer in Jesus. She talks about God was the fuel for her life. She would go on to write 36 books, 
30 of which were bestsellers. She won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She got 50 honorary degrees. And just in January of this year, her face is now on a U.S. quarter, the first black woman to be recognized like that. One of her famous poems is called Still I Rise, which is how I want to close the sermon today. Because when Jesus liberates you from the cage, his resurrection isn't just about him rising. He wants you to rise. And I want you to listen to this poem from this woman who lived it. And God rest her soul, she passed away a few years ago. But her testimony still lives. And I think here's, here's a contemporary picture of a woman. It says, in spite of what the world throws back by me, in spite of my Saturdays, in spite of the people around me fleeing, because of Jesus, I can rise. Let's listen to her in her own voice as she speaks this poem. You can rise, men and women. It's been proven throughout the centuries and it's proven today. It was proven at the mics. It was proven in the songs that the gospel holds out the hope that everybody can rise. So what I want to do. I want to close. I'm going to have different ways you can respond today. Uh, our prayer team is going to come up and be across the front. I'm going to ask our, our music team to come, and they're going to play that song, Ain't No Grave. I'm reminded that two years ago we sang this song on Zoom because we were all stuck in our homes and we couldn't leave our houses. We're going to sing that song because this church has risen out of the pandemic to be what it is today. If you want prayer, you can come up and pray with the prayer team. Prayer team, come up right now. But I want you to take that three-by-five card. I want you to think, what does devotion look like for me? And if you feel so loud, I'd like you to get out of your comfortable chair this morning and move over to the cross, and there's a basket here, and perhaps have a moment with Jesus, maybe as you pray along the platform here, or you gather with a few people from your community group, or you have some moments of quiet reflection. But it would be a mistake to just go through a Christian holiday like this and not have it radically alter our lives. You say, that makes me all uncomfortable. Welcome to Providence. <laughs> we can promise you that at least every week, all right? Because we don't have much time left, folks. And the world needs people who can go and give the message and say, he is risen. So whether you want to stand and sing with the band, whether you want to come up here and pray, whether you want to write on your card and go deposit in the basket at the foot of the cross, I want you to respond here for about five to seven minutes. Maybe you want to stay in your seat. Uh, maybe you want to pray some other people. This is a ministry time here this morning as we close out Easter, and then we'll go on to the festivities of the day. Take out your pens, take out your cards, and music team will listen to you sing.